Good afternoon, and welcome to the Middle East Forum's webinar and podcast series, Israel Insider with Ashley Perry. I'm Stacey Roman, and I will be moderating this discussion today. We're pleased to have Ashley Perry, advisor to the Middle East Forum's Israel office, join us here each week to update us on all the events going on in Israel. Mr. Perry will be giving us a briefing on current Israeli affairs for 15 minutes and open it up for questions. Should you wish to ask a question, please use the Q&A box located at the bottom of your screen to type your question. And with that, I'll turn the discussion over to Mr. Ashley Perry. Thank you very much, Stacey, and good evening from Israel. Um, let's uh, start really in some of the developments in the last couple of hours, because it's been, even by Israeli standards, quite a dramatic uh, week. Um, and I would say it was a very difficult week, especially for Prime Minister Netanyahu, and I'll explain why. Um, in the last couple of hours at six o'clock Israel time, um, Netanyahu uh, put uh, together a press conference um, together with Finance Minister Bezal Smotrich, Economy Minister and Foreign Minister. And the reason for this relatively hastily put together press conference was that uh, over the last 24 hours at least, there have been a lot of rumors or developments that um, this coalition's much vaunted uh, and opponents would say extremely controversial judicial reform plan um, would actually cost the country economically. Um, there was talk of a possible lowering of Israel's credit rating. Uh, in fact, there was there were rumors that the Bank of Israel, the head of the Bank of Israel, had informed uh, Prime Minister Netanyahu that um, his discussion discussions had led to a conclusion that uh, that was a very real possibility. Now, you know, one has to look at some other countries like Poland and Hungary when it was felt that they were, let's say, what others felt were loosening the democratic uh, grip by certain laws, by certain judicial reforms, et cetera, et cetera. And they did, in fact, lose um, their credit rating. So that is an example. Those are examples that we used again and again more powerfully, especially for the Israeli public, was a letter that came out today from, I believe, 270 senior economists, which basically said that the judicial reforms really do put Israel's uh, economic future in doubt. It's a very, uh, they're very problematic. They'll um, scare away investors, et cetera, et cetera. Now, what was interesting about this letter is that while uh, Netanyahu, Smotrich and others um, played it down, saying that it was basically initiated by uh, left-wing elements, by opposition figures, et cetera, et cetera. There were quite a few prominent figures in the letter who were uh, Netanyahu appointees. There were a few uh, uh, former heads of um, the Bank of Israel who were appointed by Netanyahu. There was one, uh, Eugene Kandel, who was head of uh, the Prime Minister's Economic uh, Council. Uh, during Netanyahu's last tenure, so they can't be as easily uh, dismissed as left-wing agitators, opposition figures, etc., etc. I'm sure it was probably started by those who are politically in opposition to uh, Netanyahu, but certainly some of those who signed uh, cannot be called, uh, you know, opposition to Netanyahu, left-wing figures, etc., etc. And if we remember, you know, the, the one thing that even opponents of Netanyahu concede is usually on the economy, he runs a tight ship, things have gone well under his tenure, you know, Israel's become an economic uh, powerhouse, a high tech uh, innov innovation um, um, 
powerhouse. So also in the last day, we saw even a one hour strike by leading high tech companies. I'm not quite sure what that was meant to achieve, basically having an hour just before your break. But again, it's this unrelenting message that um, the plans for this government, chiefly the um, judicial reform, could harm Israel's uh, economic outlook. And this has been probably one of the hardest blows for Netanyahu. We've seen again, we saw again on Saturday night, another very large demonstration in the heart of Tel Aviv, 120 to 150,000 people took to the streets. Again, many of them were uh, take, uh, you know, all sorts of issues. Some of them are the usual extreme left-wing agitators, um, but many of them were less so. You know, they're, they're trying to rally around uh, as wide an issue as possible. And we're certainly seeing more and more uh, figures, establishment figures get involved, like Yale Lapid, uh, Benny Gantz were both there at the most recent one where they stayed away and either let lower level MKs uh, come to the demonstration, or it, it wasn't politicized to that level at all. So while those demonstrations will, will not really be hard felt by Netanyahu, because they're not his supporters anyway, and he will always uh, point to the fact that, you know, uh, millions of Israelis voted for him in recent elections, and that's where the democratic process uh, begins and ends, uh, as far as electing uh, a government, a coalition, and <clears throat> its agenda. Certainly on the economic front, it certainly can hurt his image because that is very much part of the image he's tried to portray with, with good reason, as I said, because there's quite a lot of successes and achievements, especially during uh, and after Corona, um, you know, uh, and inflation uh, was pretty good, again, relative to many other countries, et cetera, et cetera. So this, it, this will certainly have been uh, hitting him hard. And, and I don't think that I can remember a press conference called by Netanyahu where he seemed relative, so relatively low key. I wouldn't use the word brow, breed, uh, uh, you know, brow uh, beaten, but he certainly didn't look his usual vibrant, uh, you know, self. Um, as I said, you know, they did try and put it down to, you know, agitators, political agitation. And he said um, very pointedly that the, uh, the judicial reforms would actually improve the economy as opposed to uh, his critics. Some pointed out that on, you know, he wasn't able to point to a single economist who agrees with that. But I think that's a little bit unfair with these political uh, press conferences. You invite ministers, you know, you don't necessarily invite a, an outsider. Uh, but that certainly is, uh, you know, that that's the most recent um, sort of uh, part of a very difficult week. Earlier in the week, he had probably one of the most dramatic and most unpleasant acts that he had to do, certainly in this government and maybe in recent memory, when he had to fire, arguably, and I would certainly argue it, his closest partner in this government, uh, Shas leader Arya Deri. Arya Deri, as we know, was appointed um, uh, um, uh, interior and health minister, and after two years would rotate with current uh, finance minister, uh, Batala Smotrich. Um, but uh, the Supreme Court ruled in a 10 to 1 uh, decision that it was unreasonable that someone who had accepted a plea bargain and uh, what they claimed, again, there was different opinions uh, on the bench why to reject uh, him as minister. Some said it was unreasonable, someone who, um, who only recently accepted a guilty plea and took a plea bargain should uh, be made a minister. While as others, uh, I think probably even the majority of those um, who, who accepted that opinion, 
said that uh, claimed that Arya Derry himself had either hinted uh, implicitly or something more, maybe more explicitly, uh, during the plea bargain that he would leave uh, Israeli politics. And they said that uh, basically he went back on that. So um, Netanyahu, there was, a, there was a bit of a debate. Was he going to accept the ruling? Yes or no? In the end, he had to fire uh, Derry. They had meetings about it. I'm sure it was all very carefully planned. And on Tuesday, Arya Derry ceased to be a minister. He will now be just a regular member of Knesset. Um, there's talk, or he will still be the leader of Shas, of course. There is talk of maybe making him um, acting prime minister or, or something, you know, basically a, a step below uh, Netanyahu. But for many years, he's resisted, Netanyahu's resisted uh, having an acting prime minister. There is a difference between a deputy prime minister and Israel, acting prime minister constitutionally. Um, and Netanyahu's always been very loath and uncomfortable having an acting prime minister because that assures that there is a direct successor. And as we know from what happened with Ariel Sharon uh, and Elwood Ormart, it, it, it's not something that uh, uh, Netanyahu has uh, ever been comfortable with. There is obviously going to be a look at that situation to see if they can maybe uh, overrule it, maybe legislate, especially when we talk about the judicial reform, perhaps. There's a way to override uh, what the Supreme Court said. Um, but as of now, Arya Derry is out of the cabinet. What that does mean, uh, I would suggest, is that the cabinet will certainly be downgraded and the decisions will probably be made. I mean, many of the decisions anyway will be made, but certainly it would even get more power uh, in the sort of informal meeting of leaders of the coalition, uh, which we already saw you know, hours after uh, Derry was fired. And probably that is where a lot of decisions we make. Arya Derry will not lose uh, his power. Uh, Shas is still a major, if not the largest, um, uh, uh, partner in the coalition, obviously, after Likud. Um, but he will no longer be a minister. He is no longer a minister. And as I said, as someone who's probably the most loyal and the most interested in st the stability of this government at this point, um, that was a great loss to Netanyahu. And the reason it was a great loss is because some of the other members of his government are certainly not uh, giving him too much uh, quiet. At the beginning of the week, again, there was um, a sort of a, a, a very small, hastily put together settlement uh, in Judea and Samaria in the memory of Rav Druckmann, who passed away 30 days ago. And as we know in, in Jewish law, the 30 days after uh, a funeral is when the sort of when much of the uh, mourning uh, mourning period is over. So in his memory, I think it was just like two families, just a, a small group of people put some caravans on top of a hill, but it caused a major coalition clash, and it was the first in what was expected to be uh, a clash between the Minister of Defence Yoav Gallant and Minister in the Defence Ministry Vitalis Smotrich, who, as we know, is also Finance Minister. Um, according to coalition agreements, um, uh, Smotrich was supposed to be in charge of what's called the civil administration, which means anything non-military or security related. In other words, the building of settlements, the taking down of illegal Palestinian building in Area C, et cetera, et cetera. And uh, Smotrich felt um, that this should have been under his uh, remit and in fact gave the order to leave it alone. Uh, Gallant uh, seemingly overruled him and made sure that it was taken down, which the army fulfilled, and it was taken down. Um, Smotrich uh, and his party uh, looked to send a message to Netanyahu, 
and they decided to boycott um, the cabinet meeting at the beginning of the week as a result of this. What seems to have happened since then is that both Gallant and Smotrich are taking <clears throat> polar opposite positions. Gallant says, no, everything that happens over the Green Line is my responsibility, regardless of it's civil or not, because it's all under the rubric of security and defence, whereas Smotrich says that's not what was agreed in the coalition agreements. And it does seem that Netanyahu is trying to find um, a compromise between the two, but he's certainly siding with Smotrich. At the end of the day, he needs Smotrich more than Gallant. Smotrich, as we know, is a leader of a separate party. Gallant is... Is, is a member of the Likud party, and as we've talked uh, many times before, that there isn't much Likud members can do to really harm Netanyahu. It's outside the Likud that uh, Netanyahu is going to have um, the most uh, problems. Um, in addition, this week, there were some other um, issues which certainly Netanyahu would rather do without. Again, the religious parties, which means the Shas, United Torah Judaism, and the parties that made up the religious Zionist list, have been uh, pushing for a change in the grandparent clause in the law of return. We've spoken about that before, which means someone with one Jewish grandparent can make Aliyah. There was a big um, a pub, a report on it in the news tonight. Uh, there are between 400 and 500,000 Israelis who made Aliyah under the law of return, but are not considered halachically Jewish, Jewish according to uh, Jewish law. And there are attempts to take that down a generation, which means that anyone who has one Jewish parent, a father or a mother, uh, can make Aliyah, but not someone with a grandparent. In fact, there's been a lot of talk that it's moved even a generation beyond, because if you are married to someone and have kids of someone who has a, a grandparent, so that's even the fourth generation away from someone Jewish. So that, that there's, it's quite a big issue. The diaspora, uh, especially in the US, are, are getting quite wild up about it. And the uh, Minister of Diaspora Affairs, Amichai Shikli, who was in, uh, in, in the US last week for the Israel-American Council, was asked pointedly about this. Uh, interestingly enough, it doesn't really affect American Jewry as much as it does Jews from the former Soviet Union. I think there were only a handful of people who took advantage of the grandfather, grandparent clause um, uh, from the US uh, in the last, I think, decade even. So it's not necessarily an issue there, but it, the fact that it's being targeted uh, is something which the uh, many diaspora leaders or diaspora Jews feel very pointedly about. And Netanyahu went on American uh, TV to say that it won't be changed. And that's uh, largely the Likud's position, or at least the majority of Likud's position. But it does seem that the religious parties want to move ahead with it. And there was and there is a timetable, a very strict and short timetable to deal with this issue, according to coalition agreements. But uh, Mickey Zahar, uh, someone who's relatively close to Netanyahu, came out and said that those that timetable will not be met. And as I've suggested in the past, I'm sure that some sort of commission or committee will be created to kick that can uh, down the road uh, as long as possible. The last major headache that, well, not the last, but there were many others, but the last larger uh, headache that Netanyahu had um, is that he took a visit, um, again, these things are secretive until after I finished, to Jordan to meet with the king, King Abdallah there, and what seemed to be primary on the agenda was the, the so-called status quo on the Temple Mount. The fact that Netanyahu had to go and sit and face-to-face uh, -face with uh, a Jordanian king just shows how worried they are in Jordan about the Temple Mount, about the fact that there are members of the government 
who would like certainly like to change the status quo. They're certainly not happy with um, uh, National Security Minister Itamar Bengve going up. And Itamar Bengve basically said after the meeting, uh, you know, I, I, I will go up as often as I like. There's nothing particularly wrong in going up, and it certainly adheres to the status quo, but it's certainly seen as provocative by many in the Arab world and even many in the West, I would say. Um, but he certainly uh, doesn't seem to care about what uh, the Jordanian king said. He said, I don't live under Jordanian rule, so I'm not going to adhere to what the Jordanian king said. It all speaks to some major headaches uh, that Netanyahu has and really gets to the heart of who is running this coalition and on what issues. And from the beginning, I, I've always said that there are certain issues which Netanyahu will, you know, um, allow his coalition partners to run wild with to a certain extent if you want if you want that term um, because they're not as important to him and they won't affect his standing either with diaspora jury or with some of his friends and partners around the world um, but certainly on the defense and foreign uh, issues those are the ones that he considers very important but we have partners here who really are going to be pushing him very very strongly on a lot of issues which he's going to try and have to find a middle ground or at least a compromise, or as I said, to kick uh, some of these issues down the road. Usually in past governments, especially when he had Ariaderi sitting uh, right next to him, there was a certain amount of quiet in the government, stability. He was able to handle these things relatively easily. This certainly does not seem to be that government. And as I said, we're only a couple of weeks in. The interesting thing is a lot of ministries have not even got going. I spoke to one minister this week who is not even allowed to make a single appointment yet because they will have to go through security briefings. And, you know, they, as someone who's done it before, you have to go to, you know, uh, you have to answer all these questions. You have to go for briefings. You have to be checked into, et cetera, et cetera. So there are some ministries that literally don't even have a secretary uh, at, at this point in time. And many others have not had government decisions exactly what the names of their ministries are going to be changed to and what, uh, um, what responsibilities they're going to have and what budgets they're going to have. No, you know, many of these things have yet even to be decided. So, you know, in, in, in such a nascent uh, part of this government to have so many problems, have so many fights in-house and real so many headaches for Netanyahu does not bode well. Uh, for the for the longevity of this government, but uh, we'll have to wait and see. Perhaps these are just sort of, you know, uh, uh, you know, non-quiet beginnings, and perhaps things will quieten down as everyone understands the meaning of the game. And as I've said before, no one wants to bring down this government at this point. That's not really on the agenda. No one really has anywhere else to go. But it does seem that this government is not working uh, as well as perhaps it might, uh, even though. On many issues, there is quite a lot of ideological alignment, and this is certainly causing the Prime Minister a lot of headaches. And with that, I'm happy to answer any questions. All right, thank you so much. The first question we have is from David Levine. Uh, the left-wing press presents the proposed limits on Israel's Supreme Court as an attack on democracy rather than a reform which would bring Israel's legal relationship between court and Knesset in line with what the U.S. Constitution mandates for America. Could you comment on this? Oh, I mean, there's there really are two very there's a lot of there's two positions on this. One would be that um, because Israel doesn't have a second house, because it doesn't have a president, because it, you know the U.S. has a separation of executive and legislature, 
So perhaps you can argue that it's uh, judicial. Uh, judiciary doesn't need to be as strong. And in addition, they have a written constitution. Israel does not have a written constitution. It doesn't have a second house. It has no separation between the executive and the legislature. Um, so the argument uh, against the reforms would be that the only thing that Israel has are checks and balances is a, an independent judiciary. The other argument is that uh, the judiciary has gone way too far since the 90s, since the Aaron Barak revolution. Um, it's overreached. It's given itself too much power. It basically appoints only those like itself. It's given too much power. It's created a situation where it can overrule the democratically elected representatives of the people time and time again. And that's a that's a major problem. And because that it's gone so far, it needs to be reined in significantly. That would be the opposition. Uh, that would be the, the current proponents of judicial reforms uh, position. Um, there is there doesn't seem to be too many people in the middle at this point. There have been some suggestions of compromise. Uh, by those who believe that, yes, um, there needs to be some reform, but perhaps the, the reforms, as enunciated by Justice Minister Yeriv Levine, go way too far and are far too dramatic. They need to be uh, brought back. At the moment where the discussions are taking place on the proposed laws, the, uh, the Knesset Law, Justice and Constitution Committee, I think that's what its name is, at the moment the opposition are boycotting it, um, because they said, well, it's a done deal. They're not prepared to listen to us anyway. There, there's no compromise, and they've said that. Um, and so there's no point turning up. So it's a, it's a bit of a show to, you know, to sort of explain to the public, well, there's nothing to talk about, so there's no point in us even being in the room. Um, so there isn't, at the moment, there are two very uh, strong sides, neither really coming down um, on this at all. I'm sure Netanyahu would like to probably find something that will assuage some of his opponents. They, he'll never get to a point where, you know, he'll placate, uh, you know, the opposition in, in the Knesset. That's their role to, to condemn anything that the government does. Um, but at the moment, the proponents, you're led by Yeru Levine, led by the head of that committee in the Knesset, Simcha Watchman, who we had on a webinar a couple of weeks ago, are very, very strong in their positions and doesn't seem like they're willing to talk or compromise too much uh, on their initial proposals. So we'll have to see what happens. There, there is a bit of a timetable there. There is talk of trying to get it through before the Pesach, the Passover recess. That will be quite a challenging timetable, especially if there is going to be some room for compromise. But if the maximalist proponents get their way, then they could try and rush this through in a matter of weeks. Thanks so much. And Larry Greenberg follows up on that. Is there any reform measure that could be passed by the current Knesset that would not be struck down by the Supreme Court on the basis of its unreasonableness? Is, is there any promising compromises? Well, this, this is the big debate. What happens if they pass laws which take away uh, the power of the Supreme Court and then that Supreme Court overrides it? Then we're in a really difficult and challenging constitutional place um, because they basically want to make them basic laws and the Supreme Court, as it were now, is basically given these a quasi-constitutional basis. So it, it, it'd be very uncomfortable for both sides if we get to that, and we may well get to that. We may get to a point where the Supreme Court will basically not allow uh, the laws that will limit its ability. 
Um, but then it's a matter of who blinks first, because what do you do in that situation? The, the parliament has uh, passed a law with a majority um, to limit the Supreme Court, and the Supreme Court will obviously be asked about this. And can they rule? Can they rule against it? Uh, can they rule for it? And what happens in either scenario? Uh, it's going to be very, very complicated. I certainly wouldn't like to predict what happened because we could well be getting to a constitutional crisis if the if the the Supreme Court does strike down such a law. Um, then what? It, it's a question I certainly am not able to. Uh, to answer because there are so many elements here, uh, certainly many legal elements, because it, as I said, we don't have a written constitution. There's certainly no precedent for something like this. So it's anybody's guess what will happen at that point. Absolutely, thank you. Uh, Michael Marcus asks, uh, could you please comment on the fact that instead of working on the issues raised by the nurses strike, the government introduced a bill to forbid chametz uh, in hospitals during Pesach? Well, I mean that that's to be expected. They, you know, the especially the ultra-religious parties have always had a problem with the fact that uh, um, it, it's it's a complicated issue for those who are not familiar with it. But basically, there's been a sort of unwritten rule, or let's say a directive uh, from the health minister ministry, especially when it was under ultra-orthodox hands, that hospitals should not let bread leavened goods uh, in on uh, Passover. Passover has very strict rules on not having leavened or bread uh, products within even the vicinity. It's not even about eating them or whatever. So there was, an, uh, there was a sort of directive uh, that you were allowed to stop and search people that you suspected were bringing in sandwiches or things like this. Uh, under the last government, Nitzan Horowitz, who certainly is, uh, is at the opposite end of the religion and state, um, uh, on religion and state issues, basically overruled that and said, you know, every hospital can allow whatever it wants. Um, so it's unsurprising what, that one of the first laws of this government is to create a law where you will not be able to bring bread products uh, into a hospital. Um, again, you can point to a lot of things that are happening at the moment, a lot of laws that are being proposed. Are they the most essential? But a lot of these parties will feel that they were on the receiving end of uh, a lot of laws neutralizing issues which were important to them over the last year and a half of the so-called change government, which had right, left, and central centrist uh, um, elements and certainly no ultra-orthodox elements in it. So there's a lot of laws which are being uh, promoted or talked about, which, you know, could you argue they're essential for Israel's social welfare net or for security issues or for foreign policy issues? Probably not, but these are very essential for these particular uh, uh, politicians. Um, there wasn't a, a, a nurse's strike, there was a doctor's strike um, this week, to the best of my knowledge, and that was over um, uh, some aggression that was shown to them. And some, I think a, a doctor was beaten up last week in, in the hospital and, and a lot of doctors felt that they don't feel secure enough and there's not enough security and protection for them. So that was why there was a, a one day strike. Um, I, I'm not familiar with the nurses strike, perhaps there was as well, but I'm, I'm more familiar with the doctor strike and that was what the reason was. Um, so I think that's maybe what the, uh, the questioner was uh, referring to. 
Thank you. And he followed up. Uh, why do you say the opposition's role is to oppose the government? Isn't the role of the loyal opposition to oppose government policies with which they disagree and support issues on which they do agree as being best for the country, regardless of whether or not it was initiated by the government? Well, that's the age old question. It, you know, uh, it used to be far more in, that, in line with that. Um, and there are certain elements in this government. Uh, we talked, I think, uh, a couple of weeks about ago about, you know, for example, Yisrael Beitino voting with the government on an issue, I can't remember exactly what it was, on a security issue that they felt was, um, you know, part of their particular ideology, uh, whereas, you know, in, in recent years, the the opposition of basically whatever they are, whether they're the current government formerly in opposition or the current opposition formerly in government, it's really been a splitting Regardless of what your ideology is, you vote with the government. If you're in the government, you vote with the opposition. The opposition. Um, perhaps things will calm down, and then we'll find a lot more cross bench, cross aisle um, support on issues. But at the moment, in the last couple of years, because of the divisive nation uh, nature of Israeli politics, which is mirroring a lot of what's going on in other parts of the world, has has meant that very much you try and vote against the government if you're in the opposition pretty much on every issue you can. That's just, I'm, I'm not justifying, I'm not saying it's right or wrong, but that just seems to be the trend at the moment. As I said, that may change, but certainly that's been the, the, the trend for the last couple of years. Absolutely, in a perfect world, right? Uh, an anonymous attendee asks, uh, do you have any comments on Israeli reluctance to provide air defenses to Ukraine? Well, that's a long that's a long-standing question i think we've been having that question for the last year ever since the invasion um uh, you know we, we've gone over this many many times but just briefly again um uh for the person who asked the questions first of all israel has a very you know a, a, as a tightrope uh you know as a balancing act here because you know for, for much of the west russia you know is a place for energy it's a place uh, for other considerations Israel very much a serious, arguably existential security issue. Russia very much in control of Syria, which is on Israel's border. And Israel has, to a certain extent, freedom of action to prevent Iran from supplying some game-changing um, uh, weaponry to Hezbollah. And even, you know, if, if Russia weren't there, Iran would be on Israel's border. They would be supplying Hezbollah with you know, really game-changing uh, weaponry, and Israel has been allowed by Russia to to take out some of uh, these transportations, uh, as well as the fact that they're a member of the, you know, a, a senior member of the P5 plus one and the JCPOA with Iran, and we're seeing very close coordination between Iran and Russia. So Israel doesn't necessarily have the luxury just to you know, go with Ukraine, all, all hands in. We don't even see any country in the world, even Germany today, which has talked about supplying tanks, has now backtracked on it a little bit because there are so many other considerations. And all those considerations are why there is not a single foreign boot in Ukraine today. As far as air defenses, Israel, again, doesn't necessarily have the luxury to hand out its meager amount of air defenses. Uh, you know, we... It, it, we here in Israel pretty much uh, have been attacked on many, many different fronts. And sometimes we have to move our own air defenses from the south to the north, the north back down to the south, um, depending on, on where the threats come. So we probably would argue we don't even have enough. The final 
uh, argument that people in Israel have made is it can take years to integrate what Israel has into a into a battle ready um, in the Ukraine uh, Russia war. You know, it's not just a matter of just getting a, a you know an Iron Dome battery and just putting it somewhere in Ukraine. It's the Iron Dome. That's just the end of it. The physical missile which takes out um, the missiles that are fired from Gaza or from Lebanon or wherever it is has to be integrated into systems. It took years to develop, et cetera, et cetera. So it, it's, it's, it's not possible for Israel just to hand it over, even if there was a political and diplomatic or security case uh, to be made. So, it, it, you know, what, what I've just said is really just the headlines. It, there's a lot more justice that needs to be done to that point because it is a serious point and it has been brought up again and again over the last year, but it's, it's, not, it's not a simple answer and it's a very complex question. Um, but it's one that really, you know, needs understanding exactly what the, uh, the, the, you know, the integrated system needs, but also what the political and diplomatic and security needs of the state of Israel, which is constantly under threat, are today and what role Russia plays. You know, Israel is not the US, Israel is not the EU. It can't necessarily, um, you know, just thumb its nose at Russia because Russia is involved in probably everything that goes around Israel. So those are just some of the... Uh, the, the points and answers to that question. Well, after a year of answering that, it's quite succinct now. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, thank you so much. We've come to the close of our webinar and podcast. Ashley, thank you again for taking time thank to you. update us this week. For our viewers and listeners, please join us Friday at 1 p.m. Eastern for a webinar with Raymond Ibrahim discussing Christians who defended the West from Islamic conquest. Thank you all for joining us and I hope you have a wonderful day.